What does it mean that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea? As it did in the garden, it means people. God covers the dry land with his glory by covering it with people. Redeemed, glorious, renewed, grace-renovated, Christ-reformed people. The people are the water in this ocean of glory. So the picture is this. As God multiplies regenerate image bearers of Christ on the face of the earth, the earth itself is slowly set apart as holy of holies, the place where his very presence dwells. No more will the divine presence be confined to a 15-foot by 15-foot room. It will be coextensive with the entire earth, with every cubic meter of land inhabited by his redeemed people from every tribe and tongue and nation. As in the garden, marriage plays a central role in God's mediated fulfillment of Habakkuk's promise. This becomes especially clear as you continue making your way through the minor prophets and arrive in Malachi 2.15, where God rebukes the people of Israel in part for their failure to faithfully produce a disciple godly offspring in their marriages, instead walking in covenant-abandoning fecklessness, destroying their marriages through divorce. Right there, staring out at us from the prophet's rebuke, we see that one of the central means by which God intends to thus cover the earth is marriage. Marriage, and I mean your marriage, my marriage, every Christian marriage, joins in with the project of Habakkuk 2.14 as it sanctifies its members. It joins in as it produces and disciples godly offspring in the fear and understanding of the Lord. It joins in as it sends those offspring out into the world to work the ground of the garden soil with the seed of the gospel. It joins in as marriage homes become centers of hospitality and evangelism over dinner tables with single friends and unbaptized neighbors. What I'm saying is that marriage is intended by its architect to be a creative force, a means by which two become three and four and five and eleven, not just so wildernesses are tamed and gardens are planted, but so that images of God would multiply over this spinning globe we call home. Marriage in Eden is a square foot garden that, over the centuries, swallows acres and hectares and continents until the garden of the glory of God covers the face of the earth as waters cover the sea. Marriage is about setting apart every acre for his glory. Redeemed marriage mediates divine holiness to a cosmos starved of the same. Marriage is, in other words, anything but mundane. Even its mundanities are glories. Even its miseries are majesties. Even its failures are mingled with hope, not because of husband and wife, but because of the great husband, who has committed to not only wash his bride clean, but send her, commissioned and clothed in power, to leaven the whole lump and occupy every zip code. That's what marriage is for. Excerpt from Mediated Holiness in Holy Matrimony by Brian Sauvet. Well, everybody, welcome to No Longer Season 1. Season 2. Season 2 of Bright Hearth. I'm Brian Sauvet, joined as usual by my lovely bride, Lexi. Lexi Sauvet. Lexi Sauvet. Lexi Sauvet. How you doing, babe? I was looking at my name written on something earlier, and I was like, I still can't believe I'm Brian Sauvet's wife. I'm Lexi Sauve. So, so sweet. Well, we hope that you guys enjoyed and were edified, built up by season one, where we walked through the homes of the house and we asked, really, what are the duties and the arts of domesticity in the productive Christian household in this room of the house? How can this room serve the productive Christian household, the kingdom of God? And, uh, this season, we're actually still all about the productive Christian household, but with a special emphasis on one of the central hubs of the productive Christian household. 
one of the main engines that drives the household, either into productivity and joy and peace, or an engine that drives the household into stagnation and angst and strife. And I'm talking about marriage. And leaky roofs. And leaky roofs, <laughs> to use some proverbial language there. We're talking about marriage. Marriage is obviously central to the productive Christian household. And so really we haven't changed the topic so much as we've uh, zeroed in on one of the elements that we've touched on in many ways in the first season and you know, really dove into that topic. And so our thesis statement for this season is pretty simple. It's basically the thesis, marriage is the heart of the productive household. Marriage is the heart of the productive household. Where there's a flourishing and joyful marriage at the center of a household, the household is likely to be a fruitful, growing, productive thing. I hope you enjoy as well the accompaniment that our children are giving us. What does that sound? Pencil sharpening. Pencil sharpening. Pencil sharpening. It's, of course, after bedtime for the littles in the Sove homestead here as we record, as usual, on a Monday night here. And uh, some of the, the olders are exercising their privilege to read and stay up a little bit later and actually color at this time. And they've decided that now would be the best time. Sharpen all 64 pencils. To sharpen every pencil in the entire home. <laughs> it's okay. So <laughs> if you hear that sound, that is what is happening. It's a productive household. It's a productive there. household. It's very productive out there. Uh, out there. We're creating so many pencil sh- sharpenings, sh- shavings, whatever whatever that is. Here, little Psy guy, maybe, outside of our door, snoozing in the hallway. And by snoozing, I mean chit-chatting, looking at books. So our thesis statement is that marriage is the heart of the productive Christian household. And to, to introduce this season here in this first episode, what we'd like to do is basically give you two principles that will be programmatic for the whole season. These two principles are going to show up everywhere, and they really function as kind of like um, bones for the season. So they'll hold a lot of other things up, and we'll build on them. So we're basically, in this episode, just pretty simply going to give you each principle, walk through what we mean by it, and why it matters. All right, so the first principle that you're going to really feel underneath everything that we do is simply that if you're to understand Christian marriage and God's design for it, then you must understand how the man and the woman relate to one another and how the man and the woman relate to God and the world that God made. You have to understand how the household is situated in the world, in this hierarchy, in this world that God has made, and then understand the, the hierarchy within the marriage, this, the, how the man and the woman relate to the cosmic hierarchy of God's world and how the man and the woman relate to one another in this sort of micro cosmic hierarchy of God's making. So what do we mean by how um, the man and the woman relate to God's world in the hierarchy of God's world? Well, like how I was describing it to you earlier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, so the way I think about this is that God has naturally built hierarchy into reality. There's no escaping that. Covenants are part of reality. Mm-hmm. There's no escaping it. And so part of like the intro that you were reading, which by the way, I feel like that's the most clearest explanation I've even read on that topic. It was great. Mm, But the household is at 
the center of the cosmos because it's going to be building the people that are the image bearers of the Lord. Mm-hmm. And so because of that, um, you can, like, if you actually believe that, you believe that the household is to be taking dominion, self-sustaining, glorifying the Lord, pumping out these people who will glorify God, then you can see the flip side of why demons are trying to break down mm. that hierarchy. And then within the household, most households, I mean, like like you were saying, people are made between husbands and wives. And so most households at the center of them is a married couple. Yeah, that's the so, design. Yeah, so you can't, you cannot have a husband and a husband be the center of a household that's going to be productive. You, If you think about right. it in terms of people, you literally can't do that. They can't be productive. Yeah, you, you can't. You can't have two women doing the same thing. Yes, you can't. Like, this explains why the deconstruction of the household is ends up always being a deconstruction of its hierarchy and yep. the complementarity, in like marriage. the way that the differentness of men and women work together, yeah. even the different roles within this hierarchical relationship. So you have... This the man and the woman relating outside of the household in this cosmic hierarchy where you have the father who creates all things through the son by the spirit. He creates all things. He's utterly distinct from his creation, utterly above it. He is transcendent. And then he creates, as like a pater familias, he creates this whole household of the cosmos. This is like, you could read C.R. Wiley. We're going to read a, a quote from C.R. Wiley's great book, The Household and the War for the Cosmos, Recovering a Christian Vision for the Family. But this is uh, th- this is how you can think about the way the man and the woman in the household relate to the creation. So God creates this creation, which is beneath him. Everything created is beneath him. It sits under him. He's at the peak and the pinnacle of authority and headship. He's the source of all things. And then even in this creation, then, God creates hierarchies all the way up and down. He creates this created world. And then what does he do? Well, it's good, but it needs a ruler. It needs someone to act in his image, to rule this world and order it. Just as he has ruled and ordered the the whole cosmos, he makes this man, Adam, to rule in his little globe, to rule on the earth. He makes Adam, and he gives Adam authority over all the beasts of the field and over everything in the world that God made, take dominion, uh, rule over it, name things, exercise of authority. And then Adam is going to relate to God above him. He's going to relate to the creation below him. And then God creates this woman to be beside him, Eve. He takes the woman from his side, and he basically... Um, it's a picture of the gospel. The man is, you know, he goes to sleep in like a picture of death. The woman's taken out of him. The bride is taken out of him. And then they're united in marriage. And then they are together going to be like king and queen in this world that God made. And uh, But then even think about the way that God built hierarchy into the, the man and the woman in the marriage. They also relate to all kinds of human hierarchies, like church. Yeah. Like we have. Yeah, it's inescapable. Yeah, in the church you see elders and uh, pastors and elders, teachers, bishops, overseers, presbyters. There's this authority structure that the man in in the marriage and the woman both are called to submit to. Obey your uh, leaders. Obey your Hebrews 13, 7 and 17 would be some, some text there. They make civil authorities. Romans 13, where man is the man and, and the woman are both called to obey and submit to this hierarchical relationship with the civil magistrate. 
he gives the man and the woman children. The children are called to submit to the parents, in Ephesians 6, for example. But then what you have in this household ends up being a microcosmos. Yeah. Microcosmos, where we have a husband and a wife, and they don't relate to each other as absolute sameness. No. They're not two poles on a magnet, right? No, they're not. Yeah, not egalitarian. No, they're not egalitarian. They're not interchangeable. And what the world wants to do, what the, the, the attack, one of the vectors of the attack on the father, on the authority of the father, and on God's authority as creator, and on that hierarchy there that the enemy makes, is he attacks it by proxy everywhere that it is imaged in creation. And one of the, so the, the enemy would love for children to disobey their parents, mm-hmm. to dishonor their fathers and mothers. That's a vector of an attack against the father whose children, you could say his people, are to submit to him as father. That's a vector of attack. Same thing in marriage. Yeah, I think you can see it too in like um, governments just making it extremely hard for fathers to truly be providers or or even to lead leave a legacy for their kids. Or even the flip side, as you were talking, I was thinking about how they even like to step in and play the part of the mother Oh yes. by providing things like government-based daycare. Yes. Like, we'll make it easier for you to go to work, you know, single moms, help all the single moms out. We'll be your child's mom. We'll feed them breakfast, lunch, and dinner, mm-hmm. killing their brains with that crap food. But, you know, we're we're taking care of them. You know, they, they're such... The government is filled with martyrs. Yes. Yep. <laughs> and what is that? It's a vector and attack on God's hierarchical authority structures that he's built that are supposed to display his facets of his glory throughout his creation. Actually, really, I pulled this up because you reminded me of it. Someone was trying to dunk on Doug Wilson, Pastor Douglas Wilson, and they said basically, like, one wonders why him and his church put so much emphasis on wives submitting to their husbands, Ephesians 5.27, and not citizens being subject to the governing authorities, Romans 13.1, exact same Greek word. And uh, Pastor Wilson responded, if the husbands I know were behaving the way our current government is behaving, I would want all women to be Abigails, <laughs> wouldn't you? Oh, man. <laughs> I was like, so good. Abigail and her foolish husband yeah. is the reference there. But that's a great illustration of this same principle, of the edges of the principle and of the principle itself. Civil authority is a real hierarchical good authority that can be as dew that comes on mm-hmm. the grass, like the, the Psalms talk about the kings. Yeah, where is that? What it's, Psalm is that? One of them, Psalm 72, where uh, as dew on mown grass shall he be, the mm. king and his rule. It's ultimately pointing at Christ, this Davidic king. Good civil authority is a gift. Like, and and you don't know how good of a gift it is until you've had bad civil authority. Like, yeah. if you live in communist China or North yeah. Korea, and then you escape, and you even experience imperfect civil freedom in another country, you will be wildly thankful for good civil... It will be like rain on mown grass. Yeah. So civil authority. But they're in the middle of this this marriage relationship. To understand marriage and God's design for it, you really have to understand how the man and the woman are ought to re- are made to relate to each other, what kind of things they're supposed to be preaching with their relationship in, in God's design, and then also how those two relate to these other spheres of authority and hierarchy. Mm-hmm. So you, you, you're hearing us use this word hierarchy in marriage, 
And, and I think it's important that we understand what we do and don't mean by that word and why we would choose to use a word like hierarchy, even knowing that it is a very loaded term. Because one of the things that you see in this discourse about manhood and womanhood and marriage, you'll see um, people say basically like, um, we're not tar- talking about a hierarchical relationship where a husband is the head of his wife and the woman is to submit to her husband. We're not, they'll say, like, we're not talking about a hierarchical relationship. It's a complementarian relationship where they complement one another, not like complement, like you look so good today, but like puzzle pieces complement with an E one another. So you'll see people say, you know, basically, we're not saying there's any kind of hierarchy. And they'll be really allergic to that term. Even people who have. I think they literally even say that word for word in Grudem's book. Oh yeah, I think so. I think yeah. Mark Driscoll you said that like no, not yeah. no to hierarchy, um, and then he would say like no to hierarchy, no to egalitarianism, but yes to complementarity. I think we're gonna have a whole episode on this. Topic. Yeah, we are. We're gonna talk a lot more about this. But one of the things that that we think is that you should actually be perfectly comfortable with the word hierarchy in the home. You should be perfectly comfortable with that word. It's not a bad or scary word, and and the for the same reason that you should be totally fine with using the word hierarchy in the civil sphere or in the church. In the church, there's a hierarchy. There are elders who are leading. They are genuinely in authority. They're heads. And then you have uh, churchmen and churchwomen. You have um, members of the body who are called to submit and obey their pastors. It's hierarchy. You have in a marriage, you have a husband who's the head of his wife. You have a wife who's to submit to her husband. It's hierarchy, right? Like, it's just higher. It's just what it is. The reason that we started getting really allergic to that term is basically because of modern feminism because and egalitarianism. Because of the feminists. Because of the feminists. So we tried to come up with like ways that would appease them to say like, well, they're equal in you know in, but they're just different. And we're like, well, of course they're equally God's image bearers. They're equally valuable. They're equally all those things are true, but they're not equal in authority. There's a genuine hierarchy, right? Like this is just Ephesians 5, 22 to 33 and other passages. So what we're talking about right now is kind of like what what we would consider to be boring, historic, patriarchal sort of Christianity. Yeah, Puritan. Yeah. Go read Guja's trilogy on marriage and you'll see like, oh yeah, this isn't something that all those masculine, what is it, manosphere guys are into. No, this is, this is, Historic Christianity. This is old historic Christianity. And what you'll find is that it's very reasonable and that the principles have been worked out long ago. We don't have to reinvent them. So an an example of this, understanding how hierarchy works and authority, again, what we said is that you have to understand how the cosmos work and how the microcosmos works. You have to understand how the man and the woman do relate to each other in the marriage, which is a hierarchy. There's a husband and a wife. He's the head of his home. He has certain responsibilities and authority there by virtue of that office. But then you also have to understand how the man and the woman relate to the outside authorities. In one one way that you would see this ameliorated is that, or um, held in its proper place, is that the husband and the wife then are both under the authority of elders. They're both under the authority of kings. They're both under the authority of Christ. They're both under the authority of the scripture. And so no human being is an ultimate authority that's unmediated. Yeah. We're all in authority. <laughs> so everybody's in hierarchies. Like I'm a son 
and I'm a father. I'm a son and I'm a husband. My, my father is hierarchically above me. Even though he's not the head of my household, because there's a new household, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. But my father exists in a place of honor and authority that is above me in station. So I have duties to him that he does not have to me in the same way. And he has duties to me as a superior. So we have to be comfortable with this language. This is the language of the confessions, by the way. It speaks of uh, superiors and inferiors, and it doesn't mean them in like women are inferior to men. <laughs> it means them in terms of their place within the hierarchy. So once you understand that, that a husband and a wife are both under the authority in the church, and so when a husband is in unrepentant sin in his sphere of authority, he doesn't get to be a little tyrant. He is subject to the ruling authorities of the church, and they can exercise discipline on him. He's subject to the ruling authorities of the state, and they can exercise discipline on him. Yeah. And a wife can appeal to those yes. authorities. Yeah. A wife can appeal to the state authorities, and a wife can appeal to the church authorities. Mm-hmm. And we've had both. Yeah. Can you talk to that maybe a little bit about how that gives um, how this the relationship of the authorities gives safety and checks and balances? Yeah, I mean, I remember we had a pretty lame situation early on in the church where the husband had committed a crime against the wife. And I remember it was you and another pastor that sat down with her and I and you guys, she didn't want to go to the authorities at first. And you guys explained to her like this, in some ways, this is outside of our court. Yeah. Like it is their job to protect you. Like God gave them the job yes. of protecting you in this way. And, um, and she, she needed that ultimately. Yeah. So yeah, it, it just is a, it's a safety thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know. I just never, I, I always think you're never a turd, but <laughs> I have, I had one dream recently where you were acting kind of like a turd dream. Brian and I just rude. remember thinking like, I have to tell pastor I'll Dan, tell I have to tell pastor Dan, <laughs> I have to tell pastor Dan. And yes. the thing is because, the elders are a form of authority over me that I respect. Mm-hmm. I know that going to them, they will take care of business, be it correcting me if need be, correcting mm-hmm. you if need yeah. be, putting the situation to rights and protecting yeah. me. Did I already say that? Yeah, yeah no, I think the, I already you're said making that. sense. That, that's but the, um, yep. Yeah, so it gets co- it gives covering and safety. So sometimes what we have, you know, there's there's such thing as what we call like a hyper patriarchal scenario. And in these scenarios, you end up with this kind of mixing of the governments in an unbiblical and unhealthy way oh, where yeah. we're like the husband becomes the mediator for all ecclesiastical functions. Yeah. Like the church serves the husband communion who serves the family or like the the, the husband baptizes in his home. All these it, we're basically the husband they, is like people do that. Yeah, there are, there are situations like this. Hmm. I call them hyper-patriarchal. Like in a church that is hyper-patriarchal where the husbands will come up and baptize? Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, there's a collapsing sometimes of these spheres where hmm. the husband becomes basically like the pastor, the king, and the husband. And the reality is a husband functions in like kingly ways. He rules in his home in certain ways. That's what patriarchy means. means father rule. He is to be priestly and, you know, meet and represent, bring the family before God, you know, in a priestly way, a lower priestly way, priesthood of all believers, right? He's to, you know, function in these ways, but but in a, a way that recognizes the legitimate authority that he is under, that his wife is under, 
And so to recognize that they have jurisdiction to where the pastors can actually come into the house and they can say to the husband, you need to repent to your wife. You're sinning against your wife. Even to the state where the wife can appeal and say, husband, you are not allowed to, for example, abuse me or the children. Well, and I think too, correct me if I'm wrong. There are certain things that you guys as elders legally, if you know, you are bound by law to report, correct? Yeah, pastor, and pretty much anybody in certain types of work, pastoral work is one of them, should be aware of mandatory reporting laws. And just, they should honestly, whether there are mandatory reporting laws or not, they should be completely clear on their ethical, on what what God would require of them in terms of reporting crimes to the civil magistrate. So you see, like, in our church, if someone is, let's say a man, hypothetically, is beating his wife or his children. We don't, and I mean like we know, like there is, we're, we're, we know, this man is, Biblical he's laid evidence. hands. Yeah, yeah, he's laid hands. It's not just like someone said that someone else saw, that someone thought that maybe his cousin thought that he was, mm-hmm. you know. No, like if we know, then of course we're going to pastor that family, and we're also going to uh, let the civil authorities bring justice, retributive justice. That means that they there might be charges pressed. If there's child abuse or sexual abuse or things like that, it's an automatic we call authorities because that is actually, at this point, our jurisdiction doesn't encompass retributive yeah. justice of the state. We have the keys of the kingdom. They have the sword. The family has this, the rod of correction. They're different things. They relate to each other. So a lot of the issues of like hyper-patriarchy or egalitarianism get cleared up when you understand how the man and the woman relate to each other in this microcosmos and how that microcosmos relates to the, the rest of God's world, mm-hmm. to God and the, his other authorities. And it really deals with a lot of nonsense when you understand that, a lot of the nonsense <laughs> in both directions. Because seriously, you do get very quickly certain cuts. camps like silly stuff. Like husbands saying, like, should I spank my wife to correct her and stuff like that? And I'm like, I wouldn't even really spank a 15-year-old. Like, you're moving (laughs) to different – I'm not saying don't, like, lead in your home and help your wife repent of her sin and all. Like, do exercise strong leadership. But you get stuff like that or, like, you know, should a husband force himself on his wife if she won't be sexually available? Like, it's obviously not. You it you meathead like that's the the answer is like no you're 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 reaching for the wrong tools in in uh, in exercising your authority so it's always Christ like authority that we're aiming for it's always lay your life down lead with courage do say the hard word do bring the needed correction do all the things that Christ would do but do so laying your life down. Right, and that really deals with a lot of the nonsense. Yeah, and letting scripture define what that leadership looks like, yeah. not pop psychology. Yes, or Beth Moore. Yeah, like everything is abuse, or everything is marital rape, or, or let's just is... completely redefine consent. <laughs> right, all of a sudden. So you have to be really skeptical of a lot of this this nonsense. And what what you have to see is that a lot of it does, like you said, a lot of it comes back to deconstruction. Will you? Can you read us that quote? There's a section in Esalen I'll here. I'll do my best. Not in Esalen. 
in C.R. Wiley's book that we wanted to... To the end of the chapter, like I said? Yeah, it's it's a couple of paragraphs, but it's really good. In the pre-modern world, a father gave his household its vertical dimension. That's because you must have hierarchy when serious work is to be done. But vertically didn't begin or end with him. Fathers were subject to higher authorities. You could call them the middlemen of the cosmos. He stands between his household and heaven, representing each to the other. Heavenly laws were the real basis of the economy. I liked that line. Yeah, that's really good. The the welfare of a household depended on them. That's why a pious man enforced them. He was embedded in a structure he did not invent, and he had responsibilities that he did not choose. Piety consists in performing his duty. As you know, things are different today. Households are not economies in the old sense of the term. They actually... They're actually more like recreation centers. We've outsourced productive enterprises to the workplace, and when it comes to social welfare, now the young, the old, the sick, and the out of work all depend on the helping professions. The unexpected consequence of this has been a downgrade in the father's authority. Unexpected, that is, by anyone who isn't a Marxist. Marx saw it coming and rejoiced. In our time, just what is a father supposed to be in charge of anyways? What to watch on TV? Consequently, modern houses don't have a vertical dimension built in. Recreation centers don't need them. Now we all live in a single-story ranch-style house. Not coincidentally, this fits in with the way we understand the cosmos today. Remember, it has no top. As our cosmologists have told us, we have no fixed points of reference, just empty space. This is a long way from the cosmos of Abraham and Aeneas. They lived in a Downton Abbey-style cosmos with an upper floor. They disagreed about who was upstairs, but they agreed that there was someone up there. Consequently, they built their own households on the same plan. Without cosmic points of reference by which a father and husband can be said to represent a higher authority, paternal authority, otherwise known as patriarchy, is perceived to be the imposition of a father's arbitrary and selfish will. Because few men can bring themselves to actually do this, relationships and households now are based mostly on good feelings. This is why fatherhood itself has been repurposed. Now dad is a buddy or a second mommy. Heather always has two mommies, even when one of them is her father. The goal of the friendship and nurture is the happiness of the child, as in, I just want him or her it to be happy. This is one more reason why piety itself has been downgraded to a walk in the garden. It is hard to see how duty can apply to the modern family. Duty impresses a structured hierarchy into our lives. Duty never says, you be you, or go ahead and do what makes you happy. Duty says, this is who you are, do what is required. Some people think these developments are all for the better, that old-fashioned households have been replaced by more more capacious modern institutions that give us room for more personal freedom. The people who think this way believe Christianity must adapt or die. But when you adapt, you lose something even as you add something. And if you do that often enough, you can become something very different than you were when you began. At what point do you lose yourself and lose the faith? Perhaps the people that want the faith to adapt actually want the faith to die. But is adaptation the only option? G.K. Chesterton, the English wit and Christian apologist, once said, The Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. What I am going to say next will be hard to hear because it will be hard to put into practice. But I believe that if we try, Christianity can do more than survive. It can thrive and it can even win. Mm, Amen. And so much of that, that bridges us really into our into the second principle um, that's going to undergird so much of this season. Because we're, we're, tr- we're trying to build, like when we talk about productive Christian households, we're trying to build marriages in a world that is intent on tearing marriage down. We're trying to build households in a world that is intent on tearing households down. 
We're trying to build in the ruins of something that once was. Uh, we're trying to take up the old tools and learn the old crafts and put bricks in the wall of this glorious, productive, steady, faithful Christian households and Christian marriages. And so to do that, we, we have to understand how we relate to the hierarchies of the world and how our marriages are a microcosmic hierarchy. We also have to understand, number two, that Christian marriage is built on the glad fulfillment of our God-given mission and God-given duties. It's built on our glad, the glad fulfillment of our God-given mission and our God-given duties, and that's going to require, like C.R. Wiley talked about there, and we'll put a link in the description of that book. You should definitely pick it up if you haven't already. It's a wonderful book. Like he said in that quote, in that quotation, what the world hates is fulfilling your duties, and what it's going to tell you to do instead is to adapt marriage to your modern sensibilities and say, oh, this is what marriage is for. It's for making me happy. You know, it's like, oh, this is... In that article that we quoted from the beginning, one of the things at the beginning that I, I talk about is how in marriage counseling, I'll often ask a couple, what is marriage for? Like, what is it actually for? And, and I said, ask radical feminist theorists what marriage is for, and they'll tell you it's for the oppression and subjugation of women. Ask utilitarian what marriage is for, and they'll talk about the division of labor and economic theory. Ask a toddler what marriage is for, and they'll tell you that it's they're not totally certain, but they're pretty sure it's about them. <laughs> it's like, but what if you asked a Christian, right? Because you could say, what if you, well, what if you ask a modern egalitarian? So it's an equal partnership where each person makes the other personally happy. And it's like, yeah, but one of the most freeing truths that you can understand is simply that you don't have to invent your own target for success in marriage because God actually tells you. Mm -hmm. He says, this is what marriage is for. This is what it is. We don't invent that. We discover it. As a Christian, we have the freedom to actually walk in these duties because we're not we're no longer bound by the punishment of the law. So we can freely and joyfully walk in our God-given duties, not out of fear, but out of a true desire to grow and to honor the Lord. And I think you mentioned briefly earlier that when we're not like our duties, if we're bound to our emotions that's not fulfilling our duties or that's not what marriage is about is fulfilling our emotions. Yeah. And it made me think about how if we only think of marriage in terms of emotions, then we're only thinking about marriage in terms of slavery because you have to be a free person to be able to walk in your duties, even if you don't feel like it. Right. Not ruled by your emotions. Yeah. Yeah. I, there's just thousands and thousands of marriages that are absolutely in shambles that are full of misery and strife because they're trying to make marriage something that it's not, and they're aiming for the wrong target altogether. They think things like, marriage exists to fulfill me. My partner, therefore, exists to fulfill yeah. me. They And so the if I don't feel fulfilled right now, emotionally in this moment, then they're failing. They haven't earned my affection. They haven't earned whatever it is, whatever vending machine thing you're turning your marriage into. You know, they, they marriage, the thing, like marriage is fun, but it doesn't exist for the sake of fun. Marriage is full of romance, but it does not exist for the sake of romance. Marriage is full of sexual joy, but it, do, it doesn't exist merely for the sake of sex. Marriage can be very satisfying, but it doesn't exist 
to fulfill or satisfy you. It reminds me of, I think it's a C.S. Lewis quote that says, when you do harm to first things, you also do harm to second things. Mm, so good. Yeah, absolutely. When you when you miss the primary, the, the primal, this is what marriage is and is for, and here's what God says your duties in the marriage are in order to fulfill that goal. When you miss that, you make it into something else, it's like trying to win a race by running in the wrong direction. It's like a cascading effect of one catastrophe after another. Yes. So it, it's actually good news that marriage, God has actually told us what marriage is and is for, and that he's told us what duties a husband and wife have to each other and to the Lord in order to fulfill that duty. It means you don't have to be enslaved by your emotions. You don't have to be like, what do I feel like doing in my marriage today? Well, today I feel like being a really lazy husband, so I think I'll do that. Or like a wife waking up and saying, you know, I feel like being a miserable cow today. I think that's what I'll do. I think I'll just be really rude to everybody because nobody's serving me enough. Uh, you always know what to do next, even when you don't feel like doing the thing that's next. You don't have to wonder how to be a good husband or a good wife. It's not mystery. God has literally told us. He's actually said. Uh, he's told us what marriage is for and what the duties of a husband and wife are. Most of this season is actually going to be related to this concept of the mission that God has given marriage itself at the center of the productive home, and then what duties he's given a husband and a wife to fulfill. And guys, this is so freeing. Like in marriage counseling often, I'll be talking to a married couple, and many of them haven't even thought about this. Like comparing what are you doing now to the list of duties that God has literally told you Husbands do this, wives do this. This is what this is the thing. And they're like, I haven't even thought about that. But that's central. Like they're only thinking of the fact that they got mad at their spouse over this one yep. thing yep. instead of thinking, I should have been respectful. Is that what you mean? Yeah, they're they're not thinking about what their marriage is for and trying to hit. They're just reacting continually often. Oh, okay. Marriage is just getting this reacting where it's like this cycle of you're not making me happy. And so I'm not happy. And because I'm not happy, I'm going to be rude or frustrated or sad or depressed or quiet or withdrawn or whatever it is. And then they look and they go, well, you're quiet or withdrawn or mad or you know fussy or whatever. And so therefore, I'm not happy. You're yeah. not making. And nobody's ever stopping and saying, I am is a the husband. point to make me happy? What did God tell me to do? Yeah. I am a wife. What did God tell me to do? Uh, I am married. What did God say this marriage is for? And there's the thing, and you might be asking, like, okay, well, what is marriage for at that point? What is the, if we're discovering this in scripture and our duties and the mission of marriage, we'll talk a lot more about this. But there, the thing is, there are many true ways that you could sum up the mission of marriage from the scriptures. We could say that marriage, like all things, exists for God's glory, which is true. But then we should ask, how specifically? <laughs> how specifically does God? intend for marriage to achieve his glory. Uh, the Westminster Confession summarizes, this is Westminster Confession 24, paragraph 2, says marriage was ordained for the mutual help of the husband and wife, there's one reason, the increase of mankind with a legitimate issue, so just offspring that are legitimate, it's talking about offspring that are produced from, mar from a married couple, uh, and of the church with an holy seed, so children who are born uh, within the household of the Christian covenant, and then finally, and for preventing of uncleanness. And it's he, they literally mean 
marriage is uh, one of the it's the 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 covenantal framework for proper sex for proper and holy sexual relations. So that's one way. That's really good. We could say that marriage exists from Ephesians five to serve as a living three dimensional technicolor parable of Christ and his church, which actually would then tell us a lot about how it's supposed to work. Paul, this is exactly what Paul does in Ephesians 5. He says, I tell you a mystery that a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and this refers to Christ and his church. So he's like, here's what marriage has been about the whole time. A man leaves his father and mother to just because, just as the Son of God left the house of his father to win himself a bride. He laid his life down for her, holds fast to her. There's fruitfulness at the union of the of the of the bridegroom and the bride. That tells you a lot about how marriage should work. Because oh. then he goes on to say, "Yeah, I really liked. Sorry, did I just? Oh, go ahead. Um, Wiley was talking about consent, like how the mm-hmm. bride did not consent to Christ. He chose her, and she belongs to him." Obviously, there is a sense in which we consent yeah, when we're getting vows, married. Yeah. But he was talking about fulfilling our duties. We we fulfill our duties because we belong to our spouse. Mm. Like the verse in First Corinthians says, um, yes. she does not exist. What what does it say? She she exists for man, basically. I think is what. It is. Well, yeah, and, and he's saying like you don't belong to you. Yeah, that's you what he was saying is to your spouse. Yeah. You didn't consent. You're Mutually. not consenting in this moment to belong to him. You belong to him because Me there too. was a covenant established. Yeah. So act like it. And again, you see people do all this do, dumb reductio stuff where they're like, well, then what about marital rape? And it's like, that's not the point of the passage. The point of yeah. the passage is about you giving yourself willingly and freely to your spouse because you don't belong to yourself anymore. You belong to them. And them mutually giving their self to you because they don't belong to themselves anymore. They belong to you. It's a, a beautiful picture of what happens at the union of the bridegroom and the bride. So th- this is another example of the mission of marriage as a parable of Christ in the church, giving us practical, okay, then how do we live within it? Well, there's an example. Uh, we could say that, like I said in the cold open, that marriage is one of the means of in producing holy offspring and producing children and in the covenant and raising them to in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. It's one way that God intends to cover the earth in his image bearers, and if specifically image bearers who know and glorify him. So then we can, and there's more ways we could say marriage is about this, the mission. Well, then we can go and we can start unpacking what are the duties of a husband and of a wife within the marriage? Like these are things that God says, husbands, do this. And so if you can know every day when you wake up, these are things that you should be pursuing. Things like, for a husband, provision. A man who doesn't provide for his members of his own household has denied the faith, Paul says. Protection, uh, love, nurture, cherishing, washing his, his family and his wife with the word, education of children, Ephesians 6, sexual fidelity and duties, 1 Corinthians 7, Hebrews 13. Duties of a wife. Respect Wives, see that you respect your husbands. There's one. Submission to your husband, lover of husband, Titus 2, lover of children, household manager, Titus 2, which is encompasses like turning resources into love and physical safety and comfort and food on the table and sexual fidelity and sexual uh, and sexually fulfilling her husband. These are all, and then we could say like children, fruitfulness, the normative results of sexual union. It's like, these are the things that God has said 
are the duties. And so as we walk through the season, quite a bit of it is going to be very blue-collar, drawing a topic where this has gone off the rails somewhere and bringing it back to these duties and saying, what would it look like for us to obey Christ here? What would it look like for husbands to just obey Christ here? What would it look like for a wife to obey Christ here? And a lot of the time we want to go, well, hang on, hang on, hang on. But this is what they're doing. Yeah, or like, you don't understand my history. Yeah. My abuse history or what my family was like growing up. Or Or my personality. Or my diagnosis was X, Y, Z. Yeah. (laughs) I have do not a lycheosis, my husband, Nemius. Did you just say you don't like your husband, but kind of vaguely Latin sounding? No, no. I got this diagnosis from a therapist. They were licensed. Unlike you. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, I think God is probably licensed. <laughs> and, you know, he, 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 he's probably licensed, if, if, that's, if that matters. So, so much of this season, we're going to be unpacking these principles and relating them to just different aspects of marriage and different practical aspects. We really hope that this season, and our, we're, we're laboring to make this season very practical, very practical, very blue-collar, directly attaching the principles to moments and actual circumstances of your life. So any last words, babe, before we wrap up? Not that I can think of. Okay, well, Lexi and the baby in her womb are going to go to sleep now, as am I shortly. So thanks for listening, guys. As always, one of the best ways that you can continue to make the show possible and support this work is uh, by becoming a supporter over at patreon.com. We do have a link in the description to our patron channel. And if you sign up, there we have some tiers where you get things like our Feed the Patriarchy mug sent to you at no cost. Uh, things like every single week we produce uh, an extra episode. Uh, called In the Kitchen, where we talk through different principles from the sh- from the episode, practical things, answer listener questions, and more. And uh, if you sign up today, not only will you get access to the In the Kitchen that released today, you'll also get access to our whole back catalog of In the Kitchen episodes, which at this point is 25 or 30 episodes and growing. So sign up there, help make this show possible. And as always, uh, may the Lord bless and keep you, cause his face to shine upon you, and on your households. Thank you.